Now, you all may have figured it out. You're probably not going to live here all pumped up and lifted up today because we are going to talk about Psalms of Lament. A lament. Um, a lament it could be an expression of sorrow or of regret, um, frustration or confusion. A lament in some ways is just saying out loud that um, I don't like the way things are. Matter of fact, most often in the Psalms, you'll find a lament is really a complaint of sorts. Um, complaining about the way things are, the confusion, the misunderstanding of how things are. Um, and I, as I was thinking about it, I've read through a lot of Psalms of Lament in the last couple of weeks. And as I've read through those, uh, a video came to mind. So I want to show you a second video. This one is just a little clip from the movie The Apostle. In it, Robert Duvall is praying, and I think it's a good example good picture of what a prayer of a lament might look like. So go ahead and play that if you would. Has taken my wife, they stole my church. That's a temple I built for you. And I'm going to yell at you because I'm mad at you. I can't. Take it. Give me a sign or something. Blow this pain out of me. Give it to me tonight, Lord God, Jehovah. If you won't give me back my wife, give me peace. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give me peace. Give me peace. I don't know who's been fooling with me. You are the devil. I don't know. And I won't even bring the human into this. He's just a mutt, so I'm not even going to bring him into it. But I'm confused. I'm mad. I love you, Lord. I love you. But I'm mad at you. I am mad at you. So deliver me tonight, Lord. What should I do? Now tell me. Should I lay hands on myself? What should I do? I know I'm a sinner and a once in a while woman, but I'm your servant. Since I was a little boy, you brought me back from the dead. I'm your servant. What should I do? Tell me. I've always called you Jesus. You always called me Sonny. What should I do, Jesus? This is Sonny talking now. that he's, I tell you, ever since he was a little bitty boy, he sometimes talks to the Lord, and sometimes he yells at the Lord, and tonight he just happens to be yelling at him. Well, could you tell him to talk a little softer or whatever, because people got to get their sleep into it. Do you know what time it is? Come on. Now I'm calling you Jesus. Talk to Sonny. You don't talk to Sonny tonight, it seems like. Whether it's that prayer or this, when we read the words in the Psalms, which I think are often even much stronger than that prayer, it's kind of uncomfortable at times to hear people expressing disappointment or frustration to God and at God, um, really getting angry towards Him. It's, it's difficult sometimes. To hear complaints to God doesn't seem quite right. Um, yet it's one of the... Lament is one of the most common forms of language in Scripture. If you look at the Psalms, there are more Psalms of lament than any other type of psalm. About a third of the Psalms could be identified as Psalms of lament. Uh, psalms are the most often quoted of the Old Testament books in the New Testament. And if you look in the New Testament, the most often quoted of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. 
Probably the one we know best is from the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spoken by Jesus. Um, but words that are spoken often, and, and we seem to be encouraged to make this part of the language of God's people. Words of lament, language of lament. Yet there's a problem we struggle with. I think it's why we're a little uncomfortable. Because we're also told in Scripture not to complain. You have passages like Philippians 2. It says, do everything without complaint or arguing. Everything without complaint. Or you think of the wanderings in the desert by the people of God during the Exodus. And how many times they were condemned for their grumbling and their complaining and faced pretty severe consequences from God because they were complainers. So what do we do with that? This language of complaint next to these commands not to be complainers or grumblers. One explanation I like is from a, a former mentor of mine and pro professor of mine, Dan Allender. Uh, when writing about these psalms lament, he wrote this. A grumbler has already reached a conclusion. Shut down all desire and postures with questions that are barely concealed accusations. A person who laments may sound like a grumbler, both vocalize anguish, anger, and confusion, but a lament involves even deeper emotion because a lament is truly asking, seeking, knocking to comprehend the heart of God. Maybe another way to think about it would be those who are parents of teens. You've probably experienced this at some point where you had times where you've, you've told your teenager there's something they can't do that they really want to do. Maybe a place they can't go that they really want to go. And you get back that response that says something like, well, that's just unfair. Why can't I go? And you know that sometimes that's a question. Sometimes in there, there really is a seeking for understanding. I want to know this is something I really want, and why are you in the way of it? Help me understand. Give me an explanation. But you also know sometimes there's no question in there. Sometimes it's simply an accusation. It's a statement against you. The why can't I go, I really don't want an answer to that question. I'm telling you it's wrong, you won't let me. A lament seems to have seeking in it. A lament seems to have asking. I'm confused, I don't get it. This just doesn't seem the way it should be. God, where are you? God, why won't you intervene? God, what's going on? There seems to be a real passionate pursuit of God in the laments. I want to find you. I want to move past this distance that seems to be between you and I. I want you to bring clarity to the confusion that I'm in. Am I losing a mic here? Pursuit, question, asking. It seems to be wrapped up in the, in the laments. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann uh, calls these the, the psalms of disorientation. Saying these are the psalms where there's something we just don't get confused, life just doesn't seem right, and we're trying to figure it out. But we're turning to God in our trying to figure it out in the Psalms of Lament. Um, if the Psalms of Lament are the most common of the Psalms, then the question is raised, so why is that language so uncommon in the church today? Why do we find it so seldom in our hymn? But you look back hymn books, you know, the last couple of years, it's kind of hard to find lament in the Psalms. It's just something we don't do very well or do very often. It again, in the songbook of the temple, very common, the most common. So why not? Where's it gone? 
And I think there's something that's just uncomfortable to us about it. It seems so negative. It seems like if we're supposed to be people of faith and trust and hope, then shouldn't we be positive? Shouldn't things be upbeat? Shouldn't we be hopeful, happy people all the time because of those truths? So why wallow in the sorrow and the hardship and the difficulty and all those things if these things are the truth? One of the things anybody who's met with me in counseling has probably heard somewhere along the line that when I talk about the Psalms, I often say that they are, they are an example of how we are to speak out loud together about reality. They're kind of our call to speak out loud together. Because if you think about the Psalms more than any other words in Scripture are out loud together words. They're the songs we sing together. They're the songs that heading to Jerusalem for the festivals that we sing and we speak out loud. They're the words that we together as a people not alone, but together are to say out loud. Why? I think we need each other sometimes to face the whole truth, all of reality, um, to face hard realities in our world, to really walk into them, own them, not run away to denial or escape, but to face them. We kind of need each other to pull us back there and to feel safe going there. But I like to call myself a realist. I like to say that I'm a person who can face hard realities and talk about them and enter into them. But the Psalms of Lament remind me that's not everything it means to be a realist. Because a realist, someone who truly is willing to face reality. Also the Psalms of Lament remind us that even though we live in a world where we taste what it is to be distant from God, where we taste what it is to be in the midst of, of what the world is like without God, injustice and pain and suffering. We get a taste of that. Through God's mercy, he's letting us have a taste of what comes because of our rejection of him. But what's also equally true and equally real is that we live in a world where because of God's grace and mercy, he's not given us over fully to that. He lets us taste his presence and his work, and he is building his church, and he's redeeming a people, and Jesus will come again and set things right. That's reality, too. Even in the midst of what seems like God's absence, if we look and if we seek, God is here. God is present. There are signs of God's goodness in his activity. We're reminded of it in his word. We're reminded of it in his people. If we look closely, to be truly a realist means we'd face hard realities. But we would also seek and look for and, and be honest about God's presence. I think the Psalms lament call us to both. They call us to step into reality in a lot of different ways, to be realist. Um, there are seven elements usually identified in Psalms of Lament, and these seven elements don't appear in every Psalm of Lament, but some of them seem to be in each. So first one is invocation, and then there's a plea to God for help is another uh, element that's often there. And those two, to be honest, are pretty similar. An invocation and a plea to God for help are pretty much the same thing, so maybe there's really six elements. Um, a complaint somewhere. The psalmist is generally saying there's something I don't like the way it is. I want it to be different. A confession of sin or assertion of innocence. Somewhere often they're saying I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm part of why things are not the way they are. Sometimes in the psalms lament though you'll find someone saying I didn't do anything wrong and I'm still suffering. There's a curse of enemies often. Bob kind of spoke about this a few weeks ago, the precatory psalms, 
and these overlap a lot of times. A curse of the enemies, wanting harm to come and judgment on enemies. There's an expression of confidence in God's response, and then out of that grows sort of a hymn or a blessing, just celebrating the fact that God is and God is at work. Um, the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament is the 69th Psalm, and that's the one I want to take a look at today. So if you would turn there. And the reason I chose the 69th Psalm, because even though many psalms lament don't include all of these elements, just some, the 69th Psalm actually seems to include all of them. It has all of seven of these elements in it. So I thought it was a good one to look at. But it's a very long psalm. We would be here until well into the afternoon if we went through it in depth. So we're just going to kind of skim over it. Take a look at this psalm of lament. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to come back and look at lament again with you. Uh, it's kind of good planning. We didn't really do it on purpose, but we had David Mentz in between. So, you know, I'm sure David Mentz will lift you up, and then I'll bring you back down again a week later. So the 69th Psalm begins with an invocation and a plea, and that invocation and plea in those simple words, Save me, O God. God, just step in. Please intervene and save me. And then we step into the complaint. What's wrong? And he describes it this way. He kind of, David, the psalmist here, kind of paints a picture for us. He says, God, save me because right now I feel like I'm going under, like I'm drowning, like the waters are starting to creep up and they're, they're about to go over my head. He even describes this almost, I picture someone kind of in a well where it's filling with water and I just can't get out. And he says, I'm trying to get a foothold. I'm grabbing and scratching, trying to stay above the water, but I can feel it ever creeping up. I feel like I'm about to drown. I'm about to go under. I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm just terrified. We all know that feeling of being overwhelmed. I think he describes it well. We know what it is to have responsibilities or expectations piling up to the point that we feel like I just can't do it. Failure is looming. There's just no way I can keep up. We know what it is times to have someone we love, like one of our children, another person that we care deeply about, who's moving in directions that we just can't stand to see them moving. We ache for them to turn back or to turn back to God. And sometimes it seems like even anything we do seems to push them further. And you know that feeling of it's just getting deeper and deeper and it's going over my head. God save me. God step in. Sometimes they're internal battles. You know, sometimes there are those battles with a sin that, God, I just wish I could deal with and let go of and turn away from. And somehow I keep falling back into it. I just feel it coming up here, God. Help me, save me. Sometimes it's those, that darkness that seems to sneak in. Those self-doubts or maybe that self-contempt that I just can't let go of. Sometimes it's just playing the sorrow of this life. It feels overwhelming. God, how do I... These things may be true, God, but right now it just feels like it's over my head and I can't get a hold of anything that lets me get a breath again. He says, in that place, David says, that's where I am, God. Please step in and save me. I desperately, desperately need your help. Now, if this was the average Christian movie, this is the point where that person who's about to drown would suddenly turn to God, say, save me. God would step in and intervene. Um, their life would turn around, uh, butterflies would flutter by, and birds would sing, and life would be pretty good. And we'd, we'd throw in a little difficulty to keep it real, but everything would be okay from now on. Um, but that isn't the psalm. That isn't where it goes. In verse 3, David begins talking about the fact that, God, I keep calling out for you, and my throat is parched. 
I have called out for you so much, and God, I still don't hear an answer. God, I've been searching everywhere for you, and my eyes are starting to fail. I simply cannot find you. God, where are you? Why will you not step in and respond to me? And he keeps looking, and he simply can't find him. And David starts explaining his need for God to God. He says, God, you know my enemies have no cause against me. He's saying to God, you know that I've really done nothing to deserve this. And we could say, David, are you really facing your sin? And, well, sometimes, honestly, we're victim of the sin of others. Sometimes we're agents. To be honest, most of the time we're both. You know, and there are times where maybe really David's saying, things are happening to me that are just simply unfair and just. God, where are you? Why won't you step in and set things right? I think for some it's hard at times to face the fact they're an agent. I think for some it's equally hard sometimes to face the fact they're a victim. It's a little easier sometimes to blame myself because then maybe I feel a little more in control of things instead of facing the fact that sometimes things, things just don't make sense, they're unfair, and God, why won't you stop it? Why won't you step in and set all these things right? And it's easy to imagine David being somebody who, in this case, I mean, many times David was quick to confess his sin and to say he was responsible for a lot of the pain that was in his life. But here he seems to be saying, this is a time where God, I'm being asked to restore things I didn't steal. I'm, I'm being attacked for things I didn't deserve. And it's kind of easy to imagine that. To imagine somebody who, because the blessing of God has fallen upon them, Others are kind of jealous of it. You see that story of David. You see it early on with his brothers being jealous of him and attacking him. You see it with Saul when the blessing of God was on David and that jealousy stirred contempt in Saul towards him. And it's easy to imagine David, a man of wealth and power, a man who's been blessed by God in remarkable ways, that many people kind of would long for him to fall. You even want to encourage his fall. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a, another seminary student who, because of some kind of family trust, received a huge check every month. And he was going to receive it for the rest of his life. Every month he got a huge check. And he and his wife never had to work, and he just focused on seminary and ministry, and it was great. You know? i got to admit, I hated him a little bit for it. I kind of didn't like him because every month he got that check. You know, he's a good guy. He's a good guy doing good with his money, but I still kind of didn't like him because of jealousy because the blessing was falling on him and I kind of wanted it to fall my way more and a little less on him. We know that. And it's not hard to imagine David being a man who, who felt that and was under those kind of attacks. And then in verses 6 through 12, David kind of expands his argument, makes even a stronger case, saying, God, not only is this undeserved, but God, these things that are happening to me are happening to me because I'm following after you. And these things that are happening on me, God, they could cause harm to your people. Because you know who's really going to glory in a child of God struggling and being under attack and falling? It's going to be the evil one. And David seems to say, but God, you know, God, I'm, I'm trying to follow you, and this attack is often because I'm following you. And God, don't let me be disgraced before your people. Don't let me be a cause of others turning away from you or doubting your presence or doubting your goodness. Don't let that be. I think the psalm's lament, and this psalm especially, oftentimes remind us again of a lot of realities we're not so quick to face. In this case, I think it reminds us, even in the midst of hard times, because what do you do when things are really hard? When you feel like the water's going over your head and you're drowning? 
I feel like now it's okay to be self-focused. Now it's survival time, right? And I'm justified in focusing on me and survival because I'm drowning. This is not a time to worry about other people. This is a time to survive. But even here, David kind of reminds us that even in the midst of this pain and the struggle, everything that happens to him, whether it be blessing or whether it be struggle, also affects the people of God. He is a part of something bigger. We can deny that, we can pretend that's not true, but it is always true. As Christians, we are a part of the body of Christ. The good that happens to us affects the body of Christ. The bad that happens to us affects the body of Christ. And David, maybe he's being a good salesman here, making a good case. But maybe David also is just a man who truly cares about the people of God. He's saying, God, please don't let this continue. Please intervene because of the negative effect this can have upon your people and upon the testimony towards you. But what strikes me then is when you get to verse 13, David turns around and pleads for rescue again. He has... He has pleaded. He said he's drowning. He's made his case. He said, God, I'm calling out and my throat is growing dry and parched because of it. My eyes are failing. And then he pleads again. He doesn't turn somewhere else. He doesn't give up. He keeps going back to God. Look in uh, verse 16. It says, Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am troubled. Even in the midst of this silence, David says, out of your goodness, your love, God, respond. I believe it's there. I believe you're there. God, I need it. Step in. It's the solution I long for. Verses 19, 21, he speaks again about how he feels abandoned, and we go back there again, how alone he feels. And then in verse 22, some more uncomfortable words. In verse 22, he starts, again, speaking curses upon his enemies, asking God to intervene and, and bring harm to those who have been harming him. Probably the most powerful of those words, as a matter of fact, Bob mentioned these a few weeks ago, uh, are the words, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Ooh, uncomfortable words. David's literally saying, God, may you just send them to hell, these people who, who want to do harm to me these people who are against me. We go, oh, you're not supposed to say that, David. That's not right. It's not the godly thing to say, right? What you're supposed to say is, love your enemy and do good towards those who persecute you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's the Bible. That's what you're supposed to say. David, you're supposed to pull for them. Not tell God sent them to hell. But those are the words that are spoken. So these words about loving our enemies, they come from actually Romans 12. Turn there with me if you would. I want to look a little bit at the context that those words fall in. Romans chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, so again, if it's possible, which means it's not always possible, as far as it depends upon you, which means it doesn't always just depend upon you, but everything that you have the power to do, live at peace with everyone. Doesn't mean you can always have peace, but be a pursuer of peace with everything you have. And then he goes on and says those words that are familiar. Do not take 
Revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So, so what's he saying here? That we are to um, never wish for justice? Never to wish for God's wrath on anything? Never for God to judge and set things right? I don't think so. He seems to be saying, actually, get out of the way so God can do that. Don't step in with your pitiful, weak little vengeance. Don't, don't do it in your wrong ways. Get out of the way so God can do it right, when it's needed, if it's needed, and in the right time. We, we don't understand those things. We don't get to be the judge. We don't get to be the one that says, you know what? It's done. Time for judgment. God knows the heart. God knows the future. God's the one who gets to decide when that's the right time and if that is ever the right time. It's just not our job. We need to turn that over to him. Not saying it should never happen. Our God is a God who someday will judge. He says we need to leave that in his hands. And when I look at these, these psalms of lament, especially this one in 69, what strikes me is I think that's kind of the struggle David's in. I think what David is doing is struggling with this reality that, God, I'm being treated so unfairly. It's so hard. It's so painful. It makes me mad. But I tell you, David had a lot of power. He had tools to take vengeance. He had armies that he could call forth. David's a man who could bring some harm into the lives of his people. But what strikes me in this psalm is David seems to be struggling to put that in the hands of God. Now, I'm not saying David always did that. But in this case, David seems to be struggling to face that anger, to face that offense, to call it what it is, wrong and ugly. And he's in that process of struggling to say, and God, would you respond to it and do something with it? What I don't see is David acting on it. He's in the process. Does it always look pretty as we're in the process? No. But I think he's in the process. What does Romans 12 ultimately call us to do? Well, if you read on, it says in verse 20, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think what Romans 12 is calling us to do is fight evil and fight it well. You hate evil, you hate the, the consequences of evil in your world, then fight against it, squash it, destroy it. Destroy it with the best weapons you possibly have. What are the best weapons we have? The best weapon we have to fight evil is to love it, is to love those who are wanting to further evil's causes, to serve their needs, to fight for them to repent. That's the tool we are given and the tool we're to use, and we're to use it every chance we get to fight against evil, to battle as hard as we can against it. But this judgment... This vengeance, that's a sword that belongs in the hand of God. We would not wield it well. We're not very good with it. And when we use it, we use it poorly, generally. It's one we need to continually, as much as we want to pick it up, we need to struggle, as I think the psalmist does, to say, this one belongs to you, God. I've got to leave this one with you. But please, God, use it. Please, God, step in. But this one is yours. So again, David doesn't take vengeance on his enemies. Daddy struggles with this. And, and yeah, I don't think we really forgive well if we deny an offense. I don't think we love well by pretending nothing's wrong. And I've, it's one of the things I, I struggle with a lot of times in counseling with people is a lot of times people come and first thing they say, I know I'm supposed to forgive. And I'll say, well, forgive what? 
well, someone, you know, did such such, and I'm supposed to forgive them. Well, tell me what they did and what that means to you. Well, it really wasn't that big a deal, and I know it doesn't really matter. And like, well, then tell me what you're forgiving. If they didn't do anything wrong and it doesn't matter, then what are you forgiving? Well, no, I, I'm supposed to forgive. Yeah, you're supposed to forgive an offense. So let's name the offense. Let's call it an offense. Let's own as what it is. Because then it actually needs forgiveness. Then forgiveness is something that actually truly is forgiveness. It's not just denial. It's calling an offense what it is. David's calling an offense what it is. This is wrong. This is unjust. God, it deserves wrath. And God, I want to put it back in your hands. And then the psalmist. He turns to these expressions of confidence in a God who is there. He remembers God's there. He remembers God will act. And we have these words of kind of reassurance of God's presence. So look down in verse 29 of the 69th Psalm. He says, But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. God remembers, God, you're there. God, you're the God who protects me. As tempted as I am to turn someplace else, what strikes me in this psalm of lament is David never does. David again and again and again keeps turning back to God and putting his hope there. And in the end, David reminds us of reality. Reality, God is present. God is good. And we all have something meaningful to offer our God. Even if you can't afford the oxen, what God wants from you is simply to seek him, simply to keep turning back towards him. All of us can bring something meaningful to our God, and our true hope is there. It is not more Christian, I don't believe, to deny pain. It is not more Christian to act like things are okay. It's not more Christian to simply talk about the good, I don't believe. Because if you think about it, real faith, real faith is required when things are not okay and when I can't see all the answers and when everything doesn't make sense. That's when it requires the most faith. That is when hope is, is the most beautiful thing. When I'm someone who, even in the midst of the ugliness, I keep looking and I see the whole truth, God's presence and God's activity and the beauty that is part of God still at work in this world. And I remember the truth of Scripture, that God is redeeming a people, and Jesus is coming back, and he will set things right. And I choose to live in that reality today, even when I don't see all of it around me. That's real faith. That's the kind of faith I think the Psalms lament call us towards. And then in the 34th through 36th Psalm, David tells us that things are moving towards a certain end, and he reminds us of that. He calls us back to reality. Don't have to close your eyes to any of it. Open your eyes wide and face what is true. This world is a fallen place. There is ugliness all around us. Things don't always make sense. Things are painful, often unfair. And God is present, and God is good, and God is at work, and God is moving towards that sure and certain end and that hope. Um, so some of you may be tempted to say, well, that all sounds good, but why don't we, when we face the problem, just kind of skip ahead to verse 30? Wouldn't that be easier? around verse 29, 30, just skip there and let's move on. 
Okay, all that stuff's true. Why wallow in it? Why spend time in all that stuff? Um, I'm not going to show you another movie clip because I've shown two clips already. But if I was going to show you another clip, it'd be one of my favorites. It's an a U, old YouTube clip. It's been around forever, so I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. It's one featuring Bob Newhart. And Bob Newhart, those of you especially who are older will remember, Bob Newhart on TV often plays uh, psychiatrists in TV shows. And this is a clip of a, a little skit that was done on Mad TV. It's kind of a spoof of what Bob Hart does on TV. So in this case, again, he's a psychiatrist. And a woman comes in to see him as a psychiatrist, says she's been recommended to him because she has a problem. And she says, you know, I've been told you're good and want to see you as a psychiatrist. And he says, well, before I meet with you, I just want to explain kind of what we do here. And my um, services will only take five minutes. And usually that five minutes is enough and we're done. And I only charge five bucks. That's it. And, you know, she's kind of excited, but at the same time skeptical. Only five minutes and it's it. Yep, that's all it's going to take. So he says, go ahead, tell me what the problem is. And she starts saying, well, you know, I have this great fear of being buried alive in a box. And I can't quit thinking about it. I think about it all the time. I can't go in tunnels. I can't go in elevators. I've become real claustrophobic. I just can't get it off my mind. And as she's kind of starting to explain, he goes, no, no, that's enough. Got it. I understand what the problem is. Okay, now prepare yourself. I'm going to tell you two words. And I want you to think about those two words, hear them clearly, and then I want you to leave here and apply them. And she's like, should I write them down? He goes, well, if you want to, because two words. I think you can remember them. Two words. That's all you got to. You ready? She's ready. Stop it. <laughs> she's like, that's it? Stop it? Comes back again. He says, you would not believe how many times I get that response from people. Two simple words. How hard is that to understand? And people want to explain. Stop it. That's the answer. It's like, well, you mean I should just leave here and not think about being buried? He goes, yeah, that sounds horrible. Why would you want to think about that? Stop it. So I shouldn't worry about being out. Stop it. End of discussion. Move on. Wouldn't it be easy if life worked that way? Wouldn't it be great? I've never found that to solve the problems in my life. People I meet with, maybe I'm just not as good at it, but I've never found that to be very helpful for them. In fact, one of the things I've really come to believe about my role as a counselor and a pastor coming alongside people in life is that one of my callings is to be a person who, who in some ways legitimizes the pain and the struggle and the confusion that they're walking through. Somebody who sits with them and takes it seriously, who listens well to it, who tries to understand it, even enter it in some ways and feel it with them. He tries to let them be free to face it because they're not alone while they're in it. And you know how hard sometimes it is to face those things. As soon as they come up, aren't you tempted to run to your usual places of escape, your usual places of denial? And we just, we got little systems in place to try and push those things aside and pretend they're not true. Well, in some ways, I think what I do as a counselor, I think what all of us should do is the body of Christ with each other. We should give people the freedom to stay in it, to face it and to look at it honestly, to be realists. And in the face of that reality, to direct their attention and their hearts to God. Because 
Sometimes I'm so quick to run to my ways of escape and my ways of denial, I just don't consider anything else. I don't consider the fact that that escape and that denial really didn't solve anything or sometimes even added to the pain. I do it without thought. I don't even consider it. Sometimes by allowing people and encouraging people to face the truth, to honestly look at it and think through it, we're left kind of as David is, with his incredible resources that were available to him. It wasn't enough. Running to any of those things would not truly have satisfied because David truly owned the problem. And this was a problem bigger than anything he had to solve. This is a problem bigger than he could turn to anyone else to solve. Needed to be out loud together with others while he faced it because it's a, it's a scary thing to face. But in facing it, we're together left with the fact that honestly, the only real solution to this, the only real answer has to be in the hands of someone bigger than all of us. has to be in the hands of our God. Psalms of Lament call us to do that. I, I hope it'll be more a part of our corporate worship. It's hard. It's hard to find songs that help us do that. I hope we'll find ways to weave that in more and more. I know we're committed to trying to do that. But even where that can't be, we can definitely do that much more for each other. We can be people who, when people are walking through hardship and confusion and pain and struggle, we cannot rush them out of it, push it away by trying to make light of it or push them to the positive conclusion, jump ahead to verse 30. I think we need to get there. I think we should get there. Matter of fact, I think if we face reality honestly, there is nowhere else to go but there. We're left with that's where we have to go. But let's not rush there too quickly. Let's be more patient and wait. That's why I think reading the Psalms of Lament is healthy for us. That's why we ought to speak them out loud together. Let's pray.